Hey, this is Todd Stacy, and welcome to In the Weeds with Alabama Daily News. No Mary this week. Um, some writing solo. She'll be back on our next episode, which we hope to have some some interesting things um, kind of planned for the weeks ahead. Um, so left to my own devices without the uh, wise oversight uh, and moderating force of Mary Cell. Uh, so just me. It's kind of been a weird couple of weeks, just busy, I guess. Um, lots of travel. Um, really by, by travel, I mean going back and forth to Birmingham a lot. Went to um, moderate a legislative panel at the Charter Schools Conference. It's uh, New Schools for Alabama. That is the organization that um, is, is the you know, trade association, if you will, for charter schools. It was really neat to get to meet these um, teachers, administrators, and some students that are a part of charter schools in Alabama. I mean, going back to when the the charter school movement was just a movement. It hadn't been legalized yet back in the rally administration. And just to see that was just sort of an idea. You know, could we do this in Alabama to now see the actual students that are benefiting from it? Uh, it was just really cool and um, to spend time with them. But there are obviously ways that they can be improved, right? To, and specifically the law. And so we talked a lot about that um, with Representative Terry Collins, who was the sponsor of the state's original charter school law. Um, Anthony Daniels, the minority leader from the House of Representatives, who had some interesting observations and, and takes. And Emily Schultz, who runs uh, Alabama Families for Great Schools. It's kind of a um, organization that promotes charter schools, right? A advocacy. And so really enjoyed being there. Thank you all for, for having me. Hope I did an okay job and um, I certainly benefited from it. And it was also fun after that, went up to Jacksonville State University, Mary and Alex and I, um, the, the, the ADN team went to Jacksonville State University to speak with their um, journalism and communication students. So they had, a, I guess it's the Society of Professional Journalists, like a college chapter. And our former intern, Anna, invited us to, to come talk. And it was really cool. I mean, it, it, I thought it was just going to be like a 30-minute thing. It, we ended up talking for like an hour and a half or more. Um, but the students had great questions about what, you know, not just technical, like, you know, how do, how do I do, become a good reporter and things like that. A lot of questions about Alabama Daily News and the business, um, how you go about um, generating revenue, having you know growing and, and things like that. So I, I was really um, impressed by that, and a lot of questions about you know objectivity and how obviously at the Daily News we strive to be objective. We we it's the whole point of starting this organization is, you know, non-biased, non-partisan news in a world that really has a lot of outlets like that. And so the students were curious and, and some um, professors too, just about how do y'all do that? You know, everybody's biased and everything. Um, and just, you know, shared with them about, you, you got to decide to, you know, how do you, how do you remain objective? You decide to, and you commit to it. And, you know, 
to hold yourself accountable. And um, and then the, the most important way is to hire Mary Sell. If you hire, uh, who is obviously very well known for her objectivity. And she told a funny uh, anecdote that um, some state senator came up to her a few years ago and said, you know, Mary, I really like you. I just can't tell whether you're a Republican or Democrat, which is a great compliment for any any reporter. Um, so anyway, thank you for to Jacksonville State and the journalism department there, Ben Cunningham, who you probably remember from his his byline at the Anison Star for decades. Uh, he is now pr a professor of journalism up there, so they're lucky to have him, uh, and that was really cool. Went back to Birmingham. Monday uh, for a, a really cool opportunity to interview uh, Prem Escalona. She is the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Um, just a very impressive person. Uh, you know, and this interview will be for uh, Capital Journal uh, coming up on Friday. And uh, it's really, you know, obviously the, the impetus for this is the Natalie Holloway case, right? All that Natalie Holloway um, case kind of um, came to a uh, head this week with the J Joran Vandersloot, the suspect that's been a suspect since the very beginning, has finally been you know, um, extradited to the United States, stood trial uh, or, or stood in court in, there in Birmingham and was convicted. And most importantly, probably, you know, confessed. He was compelled per the plea agreement to confess to the killing of Natalie Holloway. And I'm sure you've read all about it. It's brutal. Uh, um, but Prim Escalona was the one who really got all that done. And she's not one to take credit. She is not, you, you didn't see her, you know, doing a ton of interviews, but I asked if we could come in and talk to her about that. Plus some other subjects. She was very gracious to allow us to come to Birmingham, sit in her conference room. And I think you'll really enjoy that. Uh, she is unique as a prosecutor because you know, she worked in both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. That's really rare. Normally um, for U.S. attorneys, especially if, if the uh, White House changes parties, they all get fired. I mean, it's not like it's nothing personal. That's just what happens. Um, and that didn't happen in this case. And I don't want to like draw attention to it, I guess, because I think she's uh, perfect for that role. But that just shows you how impressive she is and how valuable she is, is that, you know, even under a Democratic administration, they, they still want her. She also happens to be the one prosecuting Alabama legislators, um, uh, namely Fred Plump, who has pleaded guilty uh, to conspiracy and I think obstruction of justice. And um John Rogers, who has been indicted and charged for the same thing. You know, this is the, the sort of kickback scheme, alleged kickback scheme where the all this grant money was going to a sports league and people were taking money off the top. And so, you know, I couldn't get her to comment specifically on that case. But again, this it's, it's a lot of action happening in that one office. So, um, so watch Capital Journal uh, Friday night. I think you'll really enjoy uh, my interview with so anyway, yeah, lots of back and forth to, to Birmingham, but we want to do more of that, um, you know, kind of on location and talking with several folks about this lately. Like we had a really cool uh, experience down at BCA where we 
it basically just recorded the entire Capitol Journal show from down there with interviews, you know, from the conference. That was really neat. We want to do that more. Um, can't do every association. <laughs> Trust me, plenty have asked. Um, but if you have a good idea about it, you know, let us let us know. And that that should include in the weeds too. We could. It's a little different in terms of audio equipment and stuff like that. But no reason why we can't. Um, you know, be on location. Just kind of adds a little depth and and you know, fun to the show. So about to get to this week's guest. Uh, actually, guests plural. Um, we have April Weaver, State Senator April Weaver, um, and also Peggy Benson from the Alabama Board of Nursing. We uh, were talking about um, the profession of nursing, and um, but I'll get to that in a second. Just wanted to comment a little bit on the events of the week. We now finally have a new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Um, I think if any, anybody had Mike Johnson uh, on their bingo card from the very beginning to be Speaker of the House, you probably should go to Vegas and, and cash in because that's not a lot of people did. Um, but this has been three weeks. It's been three weeks since Kevin McCarthy was uh, asked to vacate the chair. Um, and you know, it's just been the most ridiculous clown show, uh, you know, in, in the week since that. But they finally came together around Mike Johnson. And look, you know, he's a good looking guy, well-spoken guy. He has some um, right wing um, qualities that I think some will be concerned about. If, you know, Freedom Caucus member, he's the one that sort of... Um, sent around the letter, getting signatures to, to send the Supreme Court to kind of, you know, question, calling into questioning, calling into question some of the state's voting practices in 2010, specifically Pennsylvania, and I think Georgia too. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have problems with that. I mean, but not enough to vote against him, right? And I think even for the uh, more traditional Republicans in the House Republican conference, they're probably just ready to be done. You know, it's, it's, they didn't, they didn't want Jim Jordan. I think there are some reasons behind that because, um, you know, Jordan, yeah, cause okay. He's freedom caucus too, same kind of thing, but he's, he actively worked against the conference, um, on multiple occasions. And it was really, a you know, a, a thorn in the paw of, of, uh, leadership for a long time. And so they have long memories about that kind of thing. Can't say the same about Mike Johnson, right? I mean, he, yes, he's got all the same sort of conservative right-wing bona fides that, you know, that is probably required to be in leadership these days, but he hasn't, you know, done things to sabotage the Republican agenda over the years. And so that's a big difference uh, in between him and Jim Jordan. So we'll see, we'll see how this goes. I mean, the math is the same. It's not like uh, they suddenly picked up seats and and uh, can um, are going to change the the math in terms of how votes go. They still only have a four seat majority. That is razor thin. That means all you have to have is a, is four yahoos to break with the conference, and you can't pass legislation. And so 
we've got about what four weeks, a little less than four weeks before this current continuing resolution runs out. That means they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to pass either another continuing resolution that looks more that from the, what they're saying that seems likely, or they could pass an omnibus or a minibus, meaning actual appropriations bills. Um, so you know the Senate hasn't changed, still led by Democrats. The White House is still held by a Democrat. So there's just limited options when you when you have that political situation. You know, all these Republicans, um, a lot of you know, the, the Freedom Caucus types have all these demands about what they want and spending cuts and everything. Well, that's all well and good, but, you know, you're kind of outnumbered. And so, you know, how it's, it's, it's all, it's the smart ones understand that it's all about winning what you can win. You know, you, you, you know, you're not going to get everything, but can you get some things, use your leverage, but if you're just going to vote, no, that's not leverage. If, and if everybody knows that, Hey, I want this in this bill. I want this. I want this. But actually, I'm going to vote against it anyway. Well, that's not a good way to get what you want. So, you know, sometimes with a family feud like this, a big fight, people, you know, come out on the other end, hunky dory, and 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 more united than before. It certainly seemed that way on the floor um, that they were at least pretending um, to be united for the day. They're probably just ready. Uh, finally, glad that it's over. So we'll see. Well, you know, can he put something together uh, on spending to pacify and not, you know, enough members of the conference that you know they'll vote yes? We'll see. Um, to, because if not, there's all the government's going to shut down, and there will always be the option of working with Democrats to pass something, and that's exactly what got Kevin McCarthy kicked out. Um, again, it's just it's been. Gosh, six years almost since I moved back from DC. And, you know, you lose a little with every year that you're gone, right? I, it's just, I don't have the same level of understanding and the, on the day to day and, and, you know, kind of pulse of Capitol Hill as I used to. When I, when I first left and started Daily News, oh man, I was so plugged in. So it's hard to, it's hard to keep that. A lot of new people, a lot of, a lot of new staff. Um, a lot of new congressmen. And so, um, but I do, you know, pay attention and I do, um, I, I kind of lament the degradation of the, the House Republican Conference. I mean, it was never exactly a well-oiled machine, but in those years I was up there, you know, 2012, 2013, um, it worked pretty well. You had you know, John Boehner as speaker. You had Eric Cantor as majority leader. You had, you know, the Freedom Caucus was getting started. You had, you had factions, but at the end of the day, they all worked together and voted together and, and um, held on to that majority for a, a long time. A pretty good political operation. But once that, once those incentives kind of flipped, um, once the, there used to be an incentive amongst all, almost all congressmen and senators that you get elected, you run on a platform, get elected and go up to DC to try to make a difference. Whatever that is, whatever that means, you know, some people it's military stuff, defense stuff. Some people it's farming, some, you know, what, whatever it is, you go up there to get the win, um, 
Maybe it's bringing home appropriations like Senator Shelby did. Um, and that was it. That's and so to to accomplish that, you needed to you needed teammates. You need to work with your colleagues to get those policy wins, to get those legislative wins. Um, and that and so the incentive was to work as a team. And and that has happened for uh, generations. Well, something happened, and it's different now because you've got the, the there are plenty of congressmen. More, I mean, probably more than I even realize that they're—that's not their incentive. They—they they don't. Their incentive is not to go and, and get things done. Their incentive is to fight, and it has a lot to do with the, the how voters have changed and the Trumpification of everything. Is that the the point is not to win? The point is to fight, and if they can go and fight leadership, you know, their own leadership. You know, if I'm going to fight Kevin McCarthy. I'm going to fight. Mitch McConnell, these rhinos, get on TV, get on, you know, conservative talk radio, and you know, that's what gets them money. That's what gets them reelected. And so there is no incentive to work as a team. There is no incentive to get those wins. And so that's how the the team falls apart. You know, Matt Gates, he doesn't care about policy victories. He cares about you know promoting himself and, and raising more money. And maybe even you know running for governor or whatever. And the, when there's enough of those out there who don't care about the team that just want to get their own, um, take care of their own political incentives, the you know the institution really breaks down. So I'm, if Congress is ever going to work again, those incentives are going to have to change, and members of Congress are going to have to decide that they want to win uh, on. Um, policies on legislation, not just get on Fox News and get on and, and send out fundraising emails. So, but that's again, this I'm more of an observer now than anything else. But for what I care about more than anything, I mean, just because we we spend you know, most of our time covering Alabama and Alabama legislature, I don't want that what happened up there to happen in Alabama. I don't want it to happen in Washington, D.C. to happen in Montgomery. And it's not, hasn't, certainly hasn't yet. I was actually at a uh, at a speaking engagement. It was the, the Alabama Retired Employees Association. This was last year. It was probably around this time last year because it, um, I don't think the election had happened, but obviously, you know, the primaries were done and every, everybody knew what was going to happen in the general. And so, you had a lot of lawmakers there, including the person who was going to become speaker at that time, Nathaniel Ledbetter, the outgoing speaker, Matt McCutcheon, but a lot of lawmakers, probably 50 or more. So I knew that was the audience I was talking to. And that, this, that was sort of the message was don't let what happened in Washington, D.C. happen in Montgomery. Don't let it don't let it happen because. You know, all these they, like, like, again, these perverse incentives um, with groups like Club for Growth and Heritage Action making these ridiculous scorecards to, you know, to try to basically bully lawmakers into passing their agenda. Um, you know, just being in it to raise money, just being in it to float bills that are all red meat and instead of actually accomplishing goals, it, it has ruined DC, allowing these groups to come in and take over, allowing, you know, right wing media to like, you know, bully you and 
all that kind of thing. So don't let it happen. So I'm thinking about, and it, it got great feedback. I mean, I had several lawmakers come up to me after that speech and say, hey, that's great. I really appreciate that. Um, and then, you know, weeks later, Clever Growth comes to town and starts really throwing money around. So they're, they're going to try and there's no reason for them not to. Um, but we, I'm, I'm, I hope that the lesson, hope that what we are, what we've been watching for the last three weeks is enough to convince um, Republicans down here that that's not the way to go and don't let it happen. So I'm probably going to, I need to, I need to put all these thoughts down on, on paper and write a column about that. Um, I kind of got away from writing columns just because there's so much time taken away with, uh, with Capital Journal. But I think I, I think I need to put those thoughts down in a column and maybe you'll, maybe you'll see that in the coming days. All right. In the weeds, we are talking this week with State Senator April Weaver and Peggy Benson of the Alabama Board of Nursing. So obviously you probably know that uh, Senator Weaver, her profession um, has been uh, nursing. She's been a nurse for several years. I don't, I don't, I think she puts it at decades. Um, and so a lot of her legislation in the state house has been about nursing and, and trying to get more support for, for nurses. So there was this headline the other day in the Daily News, it was Alexander Willis, that, you know, as many as 36,000 nurses were considering leaving the profession. That would obviously be devastating. So I wanted to have them on to kind of explain that situation. What is going on? Um, obviously, there's some COVID remnants, but, you know, it's it's one of those things that we take for granted, nursing. And there's also a doctor shortage, but um, we can't really function as a society without nurses. So I really appreciated them getting really in detail about nursing policy, what we can do better, with some of the things out there that are going on to maybe help with the situation. And um, so anyway, hope, hope you'll enjoy that. Again, when you have a podcast called In the Weeds, it really gets granular. It really gets nerdy and wonky. So I hope you're ready for that because that's that's the, that's the subject. That's all. That's the whole point. Um, one thing I did not ask Senator Weaver was whether or not she is going to run for Congress. If you read Inside Alabama Politics uh, this week, you saw that she's thinking about it. Um, she is in the sixth district. That's Gary Palmer. And, you know, he has not qualified to run yet. And that's not gone unnoticed by us or by Senator Weaver. She actually, her district is Bibb County, lots of Shelby County and Chilton County. Um, and so she has a lot of that district already that she represents. Plus you put in the, in there that Otaga and Elmore are brand new to that district. They don't know Gary Palmer. It could be a, an actual race, but the, the real question is whether Gary Palmer is going to run for reelection. And so anyway, I didn't ask Senator Weaver about that. Cause I really, it's really more not being rude to the other guy. We're talking about nursing. Um, but if you saw her comments in IAP, you saw that she is actively considering it. She's been she's talking with friends, family, consultants, about the possibility. So I guess qualifying ends November 10th. So I guess we'll know 
we'll know by then. Um, so anyway, if, if you if you tuned in for that, she doesn't comment on it, but we'll 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 revisit that, and I'll have her on the show at some point. So anyway, here's my interview with Senator April Weaver and Peggy Benson of the Alabama Board of Nursing. Ladies, thanks for coming in the weeds. Thanks for having us today. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, Thank you. it was, um, Senator, you were made aware of the In the Weeds program recently and said, hey, that sounds like something I want to be on. And it just so happened that um, this issue of uh, nursing workforce, the, the workforce challenges facing the nursing industry is really front and center. And so we just recorded a Capital Journal episode. And so we're just coming into the uh, secondary studio to record In the Weeds. So let's talk, let's get through it. Um, let's get to it. The challenges facing the nursing industry, the workforce challenges. Uh, we talked about it on the show. Like there were these two headlines, one about the, 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 the fact that nursing is still maybe, maybe the most in-demand job um, in many places in the state. And yet the other headline was 39,000 or so answered a survey saying they could leave the workforce, they could leave the nursing profession within the next five years. I mean, it just kind of blows your mind to think about those two stats. But I know that it actually goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, when we're looking at the workforce uh, demographic study that we just recently completed, that the whole country completes, uh, we had 84,000 nurses take the survey, 38,000 indicated that they will leave the profession in the next five years. And this is just in Alabama. Our average age of the nursing dropped from 54 to 46, indicating that nurses have already left uh, Alabama already. So that's very significant when you're looking at the nursing workforce. And our workforce study correlates with the, what the National Council of State Boards of Nursing has looked at, who predicts that 900,000 RNs will leave within the next five years and 184,000 LPNs. And we're seeing our data correlate with them almost exactly. Hmm. So, Senator, I'm guessing this, this is why you worked to set up the Healthcare Workforce Task Force. Was that last year? It was. So, you know, as the only nurse serving in the Alabama legislature and as someone who has spent the majority of my professional life in, in the private sector in a hospital or a healthcare setting, you know, this is something that is just really top of mind for me. And you see coming out of COVID, all the issues that we have related to workforce and healthcare. And in 2022, we created the Alabama Healthcare Workforce Task Force by resolution. It's a three-year task force. We're just starting year two of that three-year task force. And we've really been looking at a lot of different things of, you know, how, how do we address this from a state standpoint? Because this, this occupation or this sector of the occupation and, and healthcare more than ever um, affects the community in such a big way because you're thinking, you know, nurses take care of people from the beginning of life until the end of life. So everybody along the full spectrum of their life needs needs healthcare and is affected by nurses and, and the number of nurses that we have working here in Alabama. So this is why it's, you know, just top of mind and such a critical issue for our state. It's almost something that we can take for granted, you know, that there's going to be somebody to take care of you. There's going to be a nurse there. And so I guess that's why um, when I see these headlines pop up, it really you know, kind of shocks me and scares me a little. Now, I know, Peggy, you talked about, you know, as, as dramatic as those numbers are, there are those coming into the profession. Right. I, I, I'm, these are 
graduates and you know, students, things like that? Yes, it's the experienced nurses that indicated that they're leaving. So we know doing some supply and demand numbers that 25,000 new nurses will graduate during that same uh, five-year period. What we don't know is how many will stay in Alabama because we have a, a, a large number of pre-licensure programs in the state. So they typically will get licensed in the state that they went to school in, but they don't necessarily all stay here. We see that our current shortage right now that we're looking at is anywhere from seven to 10,000 licensees. So in the next five years, we will see that grow to around 15,000 in the shortage, if not more. Uh, we've seen our endorsements go down significantly since we entered the compact because um, these nurses that work in Alabama and required an Alabama license no longer needs an Alabama license. So what's an endorsement? An endorsement is if you work in another state and you want to work in Alabama, either through telework or some other uh, process or telehealth, rather, you would be endorsed and get a license in Alabama. But now that you have a multi-state license, you no longer need a license in Alabama. We saw our numbers go down from 104 to 97,000. Once we enter the compact, and I think we will continue to see that decrease over time, especially in light of so many experienced nurses leaving the workforce and planning to. All right. Let me um, try to unpack that because, again, so, so much of this stuff is over my head. So the compact is you can basically practice nursing across state lines. Correct. And that was a COVID thing, right? Well, no, actually, it was done when I was in the House. Yes. Oh, okay. So it was done before COVID when we um, had legislation to allow Alabama to join the compact, which allows a, a nurse who's licensed in Alabama to also have a license to practice in any of the compact states. And currently there are 41 with six more coming on board this next year. But are you saying that we are losing nurses because of the compact because they're going to Atlanta and what, whatnot? You probably have some nurses that are traveling and going to other places for the for the money and the salary, but you also have nurses coming into Alabama on a compact license. We knew when we did the data that we would probably lose around eight to 10 when we entered the compact because I had eight to 10,000 nurses that had addresses in compact states. They're still working in Alabama. The theory is they're doing through telehealth or through other venues, but they uh, don't actually live here. So they're still licensed in Alabama, but they're licensed through the compact, not through Alabama licensure. It just sort of muddies the water of knowing exactly how many nurses that you have uh, in the state at any given time. Currently, we have the 97,000 that are licensed here in Alabama and the compact nurses coming across the state and they're working here on what they call a multi-state privilege. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the legislature seems like almost every year you have some kind of legislation about nursing. I know that uh, you had some this past year. I'm, I did. Yeah, it was some of the first bills that passed, actually. I did. Actually, Peggy and I worked together on a lot of that. We had legislation um, that addressed clinical educators and advanced practice nurses. And one of the things that, that we've really worked on, and those, that's not new pieces of legislation. We just amended them to, to okay. meet the current need in the state of Alabama. One thing that I'm really excited about is I'm able to work with ACES, which is the Alabama Commission of Evaluation of Services, and every bit of legislation that has to do with health care related to loan repayment or anything that the state of Alabama is investing their money in related to health care. We're now running it through ACES and we're adding success metrics and return on investment evaluation to these pieces of legislation. It, it hasn't had that in the past. And, and to me, this is something that was 
extremely important. And I sat down and talked to Senator Orr about it. And he he agreed with me that it was it was important because if we are going to be investing state dollars, working towards a goal of trying to change something, we need to be able to evaluate that to see if we're being successful. So going forward, all legislation having to do with healthcare workforce is going to be evaluated using those success metrics to make sure we're spending our, our money wisely and we're getting our best bang for our buck for our taxpayers. Yeah. Well, I mean, data is so important. And um, yeah, when the evaluation services was um, begun, I remember thinking like, this is the the like wonkiest name for a state agency I've ever heard of, but it's so needed. Um, and it seems like that's so uh, important on something as complicated as this, because you've got to know, okay, we've, we've passed these laws. Yay. Are they working? Are they hindering what's going on? So um, when do you think we'll start seeing some of that data um, come back? Oh, I think we'll start seeing it as soon as next legislative session mm-hmm. um, based on the parameters that we added to some of these pieces of legislation last session. And I'll tell you, the nerd in me is so excited that we now have these success metrics built in because, like you said, now we're able to see if if where we're investing our money um, is the best bang for our buck for, but for our taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Peggy, you were talking earlier about the, you know, I can't remember the numbers, but a significant number of nurses who are working other jobs. They're working other jobs right. part-time, but on in hours that come pretty close to full-time. Correct. Walk through that. Well, we had 84,000 nurses take the survey. 57,000 indicated that they're working a secondary job. So they're working full-time at one job and a secondary job at another. 35,000 of the 57 indicated they were working 32 to 48 hours a week in the secondary job. That's, so that is that's when you look, when you nurses, if you're working 312s at one job, you could pick up 312s somewhere else. Okay. So that's how they would do that. That indicates that our nursing shortage might be even worse than we anticipate. Can you imagine if 57,000 nurses picking up secondary jobs today decided to no longer work the secondary job, where would we be? So you're saying they, you're not saying they quit the nursing job. You're saying they quit the secondary job. Yeah. They're working full time. Right. But they have 57,000 have a second, second job. Mm-hmm. 35,000 of those are working 32 to 48 hours a week. I see. What if that 35,000 said today, I need to stay home and I need to quit this secondary job. How bad would our shortage be? And no one is tracking those numbers because uh, the hospitals don't really know who's working full-time at one hospital and who's working part-time at another hospital. There's no way to track that currently. So uh, when I say that we have seven to 10,000 vacancies currently in the state, it may be much larger than that if the secondary uh, jobs went away. Mm-hmm. We touched on it briefly uh, on Capital Journal, but talk about what happens to our healthcare infrastructure, to our system as we know it, when something like that happens, something this, this sounds pretty catastrophic. But what does it break down into limited hours at the hospital? I mean, what what would the average person begin to see differently about doctor visits, hospital right. visits, things like that? You're going to have delayed care. You're going to have uh, hospitals not to be able to expand their services because they're not going to have the staff to do that. You may even have unit closures because you don't have the staffing to staff the unit. And if you don't close the unit, you may have to close a certain number of beds so that you don't go over a certain a certain staffing ratio that's not safe. So you're going to see an effect on healthcare significantly. 
if the shortage continues and uh, gets worse through the years. And this is where we've looked at how do we become more innovative in the way that we're thinking here in this state. And we've really looked through some things, not only in the task force, but just in conversation of what is it that we can be doing? You know, we have older nurses, the ones mm -hmm. who are saying, hey, I'm going to retire. Well, maybe they're tired of working 12 hour shifts. Maybe they're tired of, of working in a, you know, high energy area. They just want to kick back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Are there opportunities for us to take all of that knowledge and experience in this older generation of nurses to transition it into part-time support in other areas. Maybe they just want a little easier job, but they can use their knowledge somewhere else. Can we use them as clinical educators? We know that in, in the colleges and, you know, they're always looking for nurse educators. There's always a shortage there. Can you transition some of those people who have all this knowledge into clinical educators? You know, how can we become more innovative in the in the way that we think here in the state? And, you know, there have been so many different other projects related to nurses and programs that mm -hmm. have been created just over the last couple of years. Specifically, as we talked about on Capital Journal, there was a, a project in my district that I'm extremely proud of. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. It's a practical nurse program for adult learners that was created in Bibb County, which I represent. Um they have a, a rural hospital there that had a, had a nursing shortage and they thought, how can we be innovative and address this? So they partnered with Shelton State Community College and they provided the clinical space. They provided um, money for fees and tuition and, and covered the financial part for the students. Um, Shelton State helped establish the curriculum and the educational piece of it. There was some deficit for clinical educators. There were local nurses that had the expertise to be clinical educators. So they paired them with the college to, to help fill that position. Uh, these practical nurses went through um, three semesters. They worked there in the rural health setting, whether it was a long-term care facility or the hospital or the rural health clinic. So they were already established in these clinical units because they did their, their clinicals there. So at the end of, of their time where they took their boards and became a nurse. They were offered jobs. I think every one of them were offered a job. And in return for paying for their, their school for a two-year commitment to work there, which of course they'll be paid while they're working, um, you know, the hospital has an employee and you now have a community member who has a brand new career and is probably making a lot more money than they made before, uh, specifically in that um, community it's an economic development issue because you have um, average household income, I think of $54,000 in that County. You have an MPN who walked out making just a little bit less than that of what most average households have for two people working. So it's a game changer for a community and it gives, it gives our rural hospitals um, staff they need. Mm, well, we know that's an issue. Is that something we can replicate? <laughs> Well, what we've done for the past, this is how we sort of work in tandem and the ABN supports all of this, is that we have approved 12 standalone LPN programs as well as an LPN dual program for the high schools that we just got uh, sent out the last two weeks notices of a 
Here's what you need to do to get approval through the ABN for that. So all of this really works together and flows well. So our whole thing is to try to get the pipeline increased, especially for the LPNs, because you can do that within three semesters. And we know that the rural hospitals have about a 40% vacancy and the nursing homes probably have something weird like that as well. I'm sorry. Remind me what LPN stands for. The licensed practical nurse. Okay. Uh, you have registered nurses and licensed practical nurses, which are the LPNs. So we're very excited to be able to um, rapidly approve these programs through our current uh, nursing programs that we have approved through the State Board of Nursing. Okay. Talk about the factors that lead to someone considering leaving the profession. I mean, obviously, you're going to have retirements. Right. Um, that They're just, you know, finished working. But I'm thinking about COVID burnout. I'm thinking about pay. You know, that was mentioned in that article, at least it was mentioned in the in the board meeting um, that maybe Alabama's toward the bottom in terms of average pay. But so, so address that. What are the factors that you think contribute to the shortage and, and people considering leaving? I think the COVID did have some people who were on the edge and thinking about leaving the profession at that time to go ahead and just take a step back. Nurses typically don't retire their license formally. They'll just let them lapse. I think we've seen that with seeing the average age decrease of our current licensees. I think the the burnout, mental health, you know, they saw so much dying and so much pain and oh, suffering man. during COVID. I can't even imagine what that um, was like. Just the, just a few pictures that you saw from hospitals right. were... I mean, I don't know, just awful. So it's the stress of all that. It's the stress of working short. It's the stress of, of uh, not having the help that you need or being an older profession too. Uh, one of the things that we've worked on is to try to uh, look at different things that we can share with uh, some of the hospitals and the hospital association is different opportunities to utilize the older workforce differently. And uh, we, as the Board of Nursing, put together a list of uh, opportunities for them to consider. And we've shared that throughout the state the past year. And we really want to go ahead and create this coming year a campaign uh, for the older workforce to return to nursing and to continue our work with the nursing leadership throughout the state to look for those opportunities. We have a, currently about 75 faculty vacancies, and this is not even clinical instructors. These are instructors for the nursing programs in the state. And that's one reason why when the loan repayment for education bill got passed last year, we're very excited about that because we want to help post, uh, not post-secondary, but the um, Alabama college system to be able to recruit faculty and pay them. And so the nurses, if you want to become a, a instructor in a nursing program, you can get a loan up to 15000 This is what Senator Weaver was talking about when she said, we're going to have metrics for this to see how successful it is in recruiting some of these faculty vacancies. Mm. You keep talking about these 12-hour shifts, which I, I, I guess is just like an industry thing. That's just a, a norm. Does it have to be? Like if, if burnout is an issue... Can we go? I mean, that wouldn't be like a government thing. It would be, I guess, in the private sector. Yeah, to the employer. Yeah, but has that ever been considered? Like, hey, maybe a little too long in the in the work in the hospital. I think that there's been lots of conversation over the years about innovative shifts and how can we do things differently to be more appealing to nurses. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's something that our our healthcare um, employers consider often. I'm just thinking. Uh, how hard a, work, a nurse would work in a hospital. I couldn't do that for 12 hours. That That's that's a lot. So, yeah, I guess but as we're talking about policy, I guess that's a good reminder that, what mm-hmm. okay, if it comes to pay, if it comes to hours, different things, 
this is all private sector. These are, you know, at the end of the day, companies making these decisions, not the board and not the legislature, right? This is correct. Okay. It's always good to make that dis- distinction because it's like, you know, we went to the uh, board of nursing meetings. Like, well, they, y'all can't pass a resolution saying pay 5% more, <laughs> nor, nor can the legislature, right? Sure, sure. No. Yeah. Well, I guess you could, but nobody, I don't know how long you'd be in the legislature right. <laughs> mandating uh, private sector pay. So working those long shifts in the hospital, as most nurses do, you know, now you understand why when we have those all-nighters in the, in the legislature, and it, it doesn't phase me. And I'm like, let's keep working. Now you know why, because I'm used to doing that in the hospital. Yeah, so that's true. It's been my life doing that. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get down on, on those late nights in the legislature, please. <laughs> uh, I can tell you some of the things that we want to look at this coming year is that the Board of Nursing can currently accept grants that we not be able to utilize those grants except for operations. One of the things that we want to be able to provide through applying for grants is mental health counseling and substance abuse counseling online for our nursing workforce. With COVID, we saw a tremendous need for that. And we just think that if we would be able to accept grants money, grant monies and utilize it for the nurses and the licensees in the state, that would help. We currently have about 200 nurses that could uh, be considered back for reentry to practice for one way or another. They, their license were suspended, but they need a comprehensive evaluation in order to return so that we ensure safe nursing practice. So if we could accept grants and expend those monies to help pay for some of that in order to get the nursing workforce evaluated to determine that they can come back and help them through a needs-based application. We would love to do that opportunity. We continue to look for ways that nursing can um, be supported through the medication assistant certified positions and then uh, looking at the potential of regulating nursing support technicians for uh, lack of a better term right now. But we realize that with the vacancies that are coming, we need to support the nursing role at the bedside the best that we can and hopefully create some type of stackable credentials for those individuals so that they, if they decide they want to go back to another health profession, that they would be able to move forward and have some college credits for that to begin with. Hmm. So those are the things that we're looking at uh, for the future, as well as um, really doing a campaign back to a return to nursing for experienced nurses. And uh, what are some of the other so, things? So, you know, the legislature also passed in the, the ETF funding to implement rural health care centers across the state in some of the at-risk at mm-hmm. or health care areas. Um, that's something that um, the community college system is going to be continuing to work on as we approach the new year. It's going to be really exciting to watch those to see how they evolve. Um, you know, the dual enrollment LPN programs. Oh, yeah. I think those are going to be really, really important as we go forward because, you know, nursing kind of ebbs and flows. And for a while there, we were, you know, hospitals would get away from LPNs and say, we we need BSNs and above at the bedside. And now I think we've come full circle on that because a lot of times we had gotten away from LPNs and now we're saying, where are they? Please bring them back. Because, you know, whereas your, your BSNs and your advanced practice nurses are usually your critical thinkers, you also need a team of people who are your, your hands-on clinical caregivers who are given that great bedside care. And, and I think that we've realized that that's, that's really important in bringing those programs back. So you'll see that a lot through the community college systems with the dual enrollment program and the, the practical nurse programs that are popping up across the state. Right. Yeah. Creating that pipeline. Yep. Um, it's not directly related to 
nursing, but I wanted to ask you, whenever we talk about healthcare, the coverage gap comes up, right? Alabama is one of the states that hasn't expanded Medicaid. So there is just this gap between folks that have health insurance and folks that don't. Um, and there's always talk of Medicaid expansion or a private sector option that would sort of accomplish the same thing. And maybe we'll hear more about that next year. But when it comes to an issue like that, take the politics out of it. But just from a funding standpoint, if there were more people with insurance, that means more people getting health care, going to the doctor, going to, does that, you know, maybe lift up the nursing profession at all? Does that, is that impacted? If, if hospitals maybe are doing better, can they, does that translate into nursing at all? You know, the coverage gap is something that has been a topic of discussion since I've been in the legislature. Certainly something that, that's very important to our state because there there's a huge amount of people who do fall in the gap. Um, and the, the question that always comes up is, you know, how do we pay for it? Right. Because we as a state, it, it's, it's totally a funding issue. And, you know, right now we're having really good um, revenues coming into the state. It's a great place to be. but um, you know, I've been here long enough to know that it doesn't always stay. It it ebbs and flows. And we're, you know, we're also spending a billion dollars on a prison. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, right now it's really good, but you, you got to think about how do you fund that on those mm -hmm. years that are really tough when you have a lot of other things that you have to fund as well. So right. I see it being a continuing conversation, but you got to think about how you fund it going forward. Yeah. And again, not directly related to nursing, but every time we talk healthcare, I just, I just like to take the opportunity to get folks different perspectives on that because it's going to keep being an issue uh, going forward. Well, look, this has been fun. I really appreciate you this double interview between Capital Journal and in the weeds. It's been but, great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we well, you you. get to go kind of deeper into, you know, there's no, there's no time limit you know, on, on the TV set. I'm always looking at that time clicker and we're running out of time here. You got all the time in the world. So thank y'all for um, getting weedy and uh, look forward to seeing you back down for the legislative session. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for having us.